in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 97 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. And real quick, it's episode 97. And as I've written several times, 1997 is the reason I'm here. It's the reason you're hearing my voice in your ears. It's because 1997, the Giants had a, a team that was supposed to be last place. They finished in first place. It hooked me for life. Uh, So you're hearing my inane ramblings because of Brian Johnson. Really, 97 was the year that uh, they got you. Yeah, it was. It was 96 was I was in. I was listening to it. I was in college up in Ashland, Oregon, and I was starting to like get back into it. You know, I grew up with it, but 96, I was like, oh, you know, maybe maybe uh, this is going to happen. And, and I started listening, and I really enjoyed listening to the games on the radio, but 97 just got its claws into me, of course, and so... That's why I'm here. Yeah, 97. I, I graduated college from in 1997 and uh, started my first job uh, at the San Bernardino County Sun and uh, covered general assignment, uh, a little bit of everything. I wasn't going to be a newspaper reporter. I wanted to be a broadcaster, and, and uh, I had an internship there. And the first thing they did was sit me courtside at a Lakers game. And I thought, you know, this is okay. I, I could I could see where this goes. And uh, <laughs> and yeah, so I'm still uh, still. Still pecking at keyboards here a couple decades later. So yeah, 97, that, boy, yeah, that, that takes me back a little bit. Yeah, 97. I mean, I was in college in 97 and graduate till 2008, but that's a longer story <laughs> and we aren't going to get into that here. Uh, we're going to talk about the Giants and we're going to talk about the Giants and Dodgers and the trade deadline. But we would be remiss if we just jumped right into that because the start of the Dodgers Giants series was one of the more remarkable games that we've seen, but it's in the middle where I think it was more important, and that's the Dodgers and Giants deciding not to play in what is, it's being called a boycott, I don't like that, I've heard wildcat strike, which can probably confuse people, it's it's a statement, it's a protest, whatever you want to call it, um, the Dodgers from everything I've read, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of took the lead and said, you know, we're, we we can't play. We're going to support the, the Bucks and and other teams around other professional sports teams, and, and we can't play tonight in the Giants. There was some internal discussion. Some people wanted to play. Some people didn't. But eventually they, they agreed with the Dodgers. But that's a pretty big thing for baseball. Baseball is not the sport where you have these sorts of moments. No, and you know, obviously it was not as collective as the NBA when the Bucks said, hey, we're not going to play. Uh, this happened in our backyard. This is too much on our minds. Uh, we don't really feel like going out and entertaining people right now. We want people to be thinking about ways that this country has to change. And then it was very swiftly everybody in the NBA uh, didn't play. Um, and, and they're still trying to figure out how they're going to resume or if they will. Uh, but with baseball, it was it was it was kind of tough, and 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 it wasn't a, a, one of those glossy corporate protests where they all decided not to play, or you know they all took their direction from 
from Rob Manfred. Um, this clearly was much more organic and you could say much more authentic uh, than that because you know teams were just on the cusp of starting. Some teams were, were in the middle of games uh, of a doubleheader. Um, it was tough for the teams on the East Coast, I think, to, to really um, sort of stop what they were doing and, and, and you know, decide not to play. Um, but then when the Brewers were the first baseball team to say, look, we, we stand with the Bucks. We, we don't feel like we can play either. Uh, and the Giants were obviously on, on the West Coast. Uh, the Dodgers were on the West Coast. The Padres as well. Um, they made the decision also. But then you had some teams a day later who came back like the Rockies. You know, uh, Matt Kemp said, I'm not going to play. And, and the Rockies played on without him. And then a day later, they, there were several players who said, you know, I think we made a mistake. I think we should have stood with him. And um, so that's what the Dodgers did with Mookie Betts. They stood with him. And, and I think that there were some avenues explored as to whether they could make some sort of statement with the Giants and, and, and then play. Um, but once it was obvious that the Dodgers were not going to be uh, a willing opponent, then the, the Giants basically had to figure out, okay, you know, we, we can either support this or we can not support this. And, and, and they decided to support it. And they put out, they put out a, a co-statement, um, which not every team did the day later. So some teams uh, put out statements that said, look, hey, we were ready to donate to these causes and play, but our opponent chose not to. So... I, I think even though the, the Giants didn't arrive at this, uh, they were sort of presented with this, um, the fact that they did support it and they put out a co-statement with their rivals, I think still gives the moment some poignancy. Um, but yeah, the fact that this was all very organic and, and it was almost left up to individual teams to figure out, hey, if, if the league is not going to give us leadership on this, we're going to take it upon ourselves. Um, that may make it more powerful in, in the in the in the larger longer sort of scope of this. It is clear that the Dodgers, one of the Dodgers clubhouse leaders is Mookie Betts. He's been there for, you know, what feels like a couple minutes. He's clearly just as respected as respected gets. And that's one of the reasons why the Dodgers, I think, it was so easy for them to say, yeah, we got to stand behind one of our clubhouse leaders. The Giants right now with Jalen Davis in the alternate side, they don't, they don't have a black player. And it's really jarring because the Giants have such a rich history. Uh, of black players in black stars where you have Mays, McCovey, Jim Ray Hart. Uh, That was their identity throughout the 60s. And now it's like, well, you've got Denard Spann and and, and no one one else, or Andrew McCutcheon for a year and nobody else. And that speaks to where the direction of the game and and how that's gone and how baseball needs to do better in that respect. Uh, But it's, it's very much a difference between the Giants and the Dodgers, where the Dodgers have Mookie Betts and Kenley Jansen, and, and they can, they can, you know, rally behind their leaders where the Giants sort of had to look to Mike Yastrzemski and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different circumstance. Yeah, it is. It, it, it certainly is. And, you know, there were a couple of years, I think after Manny Burris was no longer on the team, there were a couple of years they had no African-American players, even in spring training camp. I think there was one spring I went around and counted and there was mm. like 74 people in camp with all the non-roster invitees and not one African-American player. Like you said, the franchise of Mays of McCovey, you know, not one African-American player. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's one of those things. I don't think it was by design, by any by any stretch, but, um, you know, it does sort of symbolize how um, there are fewer African-American players in, in the major leagues right now. And and, um, and and like you said, there there wasn't someone to really rally behind like like uh, like the Dodgers had with Mookie. But, but even so, re- regardless, I think... The, you know the awakening that has to happen, the conversations that have to ha- have to happen, 
um, I think transcend um, racial lines or boundaries and, and you know we got to decide what kind of country do we want to live in and, and, and we need to have a reckoning about what the history of this country is and, and how some people are still not seen the same as others and you know it, it, too, far too many people have been comfortable about this for far too long and uh, so you know I, I, it doesn't really matter what the um, to me what the um, consistency or complexion of a team is it's everybody should be having these conversations absolutely and, and that is the difference now than when Kaepernick kneeled four years ago uh, is that sh- there's no question that there's an effectiveness here because when Kaepernick kneeled it was like well what's he doing why would he do that can he do it when I'm not paying attention and because he did it and people paid attention to it now we're talking about it. We're on a podcast talking about it four years later. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened four years ago. That wouldn't have happened ten years ago. It's certainly not in baseball, the stodgiest sport of them all. Um, you know, hockey's make, doing their best to, to catch up. But what's happened in the last four years uh, is remarkable insofar as what is what the spotlight is shining on right now. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be fixed and that we don't have just the longest, hardest road ahead. But in four years, so much more of the discussion and the dialogue and just the idea that Major League Baseball, even if they're paying lip service to systemic racism, that's lip service they weren't giving four years ago. And now we can push a little bit harder. Um, So it's remarkable how much has changed. You know, opening day, they had a Black Lives Matter logo on the back of of the pitcher's mound that you saw all through the game. And it very quickly was gone. And now it's like a T-Mobile ad or something. So yeah, that's what you hope is that anything that's corporate is something that I look at with sort of a jaundiced eye. And I'm like, okay, how much of this is just is just satisfying your audience or paying uh, sort of a little bit of a nod to the moment and then okay, and let's move on from that and get back to business as normal. Well, no, there's not there's no doing that. This that's the whole point. We can't just go back to business as normal. We can't just shovel some dirt over this and and move on. Things have to change and, and change is tough. And if you're talking about ending systemic racism, you're talking about upending, you know, the economic model of this country in a lot of ways. You're talking about redistributing wealth in a lot of ways. You're talking about if you want to change differential outcomes, that's going to cost people who are very comfortable and are very wealthy. And it's not going to happen easily. You know, unless the pressure keeps up, it's not going to change. That's kind of where we are. And that's the point of, of this sort of strike, protest, stand, whatever, is to say, no, that was cute what you put on the back of the mound. And that's really cute that BLM is MLB backwards. Ha ha. But yeah, this isn't over. That that wasn't, you can't just, uh, you know, throw a couple seconds at the issue and expect it to go away. So I think that's why it's important. It's just, it's a pushback after baseball probably just clapped their hands and said, ah, well, that's overwhelming. Yeah, you know, I think the one thing I put out a tweet to this effect. The big takeaway for me in all this, and I've I've learned this this year, um, just how important leadership is. If you have leaders who are respected, who are looking out for their people, whether they're the leader of a, a company, the leader of um, Major League Baseball, the leader of a country, you know, if if you have your heart in the right place and you're looking out for the welfare of your people then that's good leadership. And when you're looking out for something else uh, or you have different motives or you're you're self-centered or you're weak, then boy, man, it's so damaging. It's just so damaging. It's the importance of, of strong altruistic leadership is just 
such an important thing. Altruism. Hmm. I haven't heard that name in a long, <laughs> long time. Uh, real quick, I, I do want to describe how I woke up on Thursday morning because I think it would uh, amuse another writer. Was it your neighbor's uh, chainsaw? Was, <laughs> chainsaw guy started at 8.59 oh. today. And he stopped right as the podcast started. It's like he knew he had a little five-minute window. So bless his heart. Um, bless his heart, Chainsaw Guy. Uh, but no, it was, uh, gosh, I don't know what time it was, 6.30 in the morning or so. Uh, getting ready, getting up, getting the kids going for school. Uh, and and my wife was next to me, and she's on her phone, and she's reading my article uh, that I wrote about the protest for The Athletic. And she starts talking about the comment section. Oh, no. And so I, I, I just, I was in a dream. I was in a dream where uh, it, it had to do with cellos and there was like a, a, a convenience store mixed in there. And all of a sudden I'm out of cellos and convenience stores and she's going like, oh yeah, now these comments aren't good. These comments aren't good. Do, do, how angry do people get at you? And I was all, oh, okay, we need to have ground rules about the comments because <laughs> oh, no. if the athletic paid me, uh, like there's like, we would like to offer you a thousand dollar bonus. Great. What do I have to do? Read the comments. Nope. Uh, yeah. Like not in that, not in that <laughs> article. <sighs> anyway, that, that was my, that, that's how I woke up on Thursday morning. But this is, woo. Maybe the most awkward segue that we've had before, but I, we have to talk about before the doubleheader nonsense where the Giants didn't score a run and they were lucky to get a couple hits. Uh, the game on Tuesday night was one of the best games. I mean, at least the best game in, since their Reds comeback of last year, but it might be better than that since it was the Dodgers and they scored 10 runs somehow and they kept clawing back. That was a fantastic game. Yeah, it really was. I mean, the Dodgers had never had three blown saves in their franchise history in one game and, and, and they had three blown saves. The Giants erased four leads. Two of them were three run deficits. I mean, yeah, it, it was really a great game and the undercurrent of that game was Joey Bart had a miserable game. And, and I mean, yeah. in every aspect, he still caught 10 pitchers in a win, which is, okay, you sort of just boil it down to that. That's a catcher having a good game. But he was dropping strikes. He was not at all in tune with multiple pitchers, especially when the Dodgers had runners on second base. You could tell that the Giants layered in an extra sort of layer of security um, with the Dodgers because they know the Dodgers are savvy about picking signs. And it's, it's like everyone just forgot what, what, what the plan was. And, and he wasn't able to get the signs to Cueto, wasn't able to get the signs to Harleen Garcia, got crossed up, threw a ball away, uh, went 0 for 5 with three strikeouts, really swinging wildly at some pitches out of the zone, uh, hitting a double play with the bases loaded. I mean, it was a miserable game for Joey Barton. It, it reminded you that this guy's played like 20 games above a ball. You know, this is going to happen to him. And uh, and then Clayton Kershaw goes and just 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 makes him look really bad the, uh, the other day too. So... Um, clearly this guy is, has got a lot of work to do, but, uh, when you want to win and develop at the same time, that's how you do it, man. You, you have a young player who takes his lumps, but you pick him up and you win the game anyway. And, and, uh, that was just, uh, and that, that was their seventh win in a row. And then obviously I think their momentum got stopped a little bit, uh, and the double header and they couldn't score a run, but, but yeah, that, that game to open the series was, Probably one of the most entertaining games I've I've seen in a while. Let's pause to tell you about Manscaped. Manscaped has you covered to keep the hair looking nice and trimmed and feeling fully supported. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. 
The premium Lawnmower 3.0 is waterproof. It includes an LED light and it's made with advanced skin safe technology, which reduces nicks and cuts on your delicates. You can get this trimmer inside their perfect package 3.0, which also includes the Manscaped Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Ball Toning Spray. Both super practical and they smell great too. Get 20% off and free shipping with code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use code THEATHLETIC20. From the moose to the caboose, always use the right tools for the job. There was a lot going on that got the Giants there, but one thing that, that stuck out to me is in this year where it's been Yastrzemski and, and Wilmer Flores and, you know, Solano had, the of course, the walk-off home run, but that was his only hit in six at-bats, you were used to the, the kind of Zaidi pickups who were carrying the load. And in that game, it was Longoria, it was Belt, it was Crawford, it was, you know, the kind of legacy guys who were good enough, useful enough to a team like the Giants to where Zaidi didn't want to pay another team to take them off, off his hands just so he could clear a roster spot. He understands the value of these players. At the same time, it would sure be great if they helped out and contributed to their capability. And as of that game, you know, the, the doubleheader sort of ruined a lot of numbers in a short season. But Longoria's numbers started to look really good after that game. Belt, I think, had an OPS over 1,000 after that game. Those guys, if those guys can get hot, if those guys can somehow get tweaked by the 60-man coaching staff, I don't know. Like, that that would make the Giants a really formidable Well, offense. and you know they're going to have to at some point because the other guys will cool off. I mean, that's just sort of the nature of the game. But yeah, you know, uh, Belt was on such a streak that Kepler started him against Clayton Kershaw. I mean, <laughs> I was like, whoa, buddy, you know. Heat check. He did make about a 395-foot out, which, which is about the best you can say. He got a hit later in the second game. But yeah, you know, uh, Longoria, I watch him at third base. He's a good player. We forget mm-hmm. that Evan Longoria has had a really good career – his career war is basically Will Clark's career war, which I know is going to be blasphemy to some pe- people out there, <laughs> but he's been a good player for a long time. And when you watch him play third base, he, you can tell he just has an innate sense of timing. There were a couple line drives that were smoked at him that he handled. He knows exactly what to do and where to go. He's just got great instincts as a defensive third baseman, uh, even if his range maybe isn't quite what it used to be. And, you know, at the plate, he's, he's still a guy who puts up a good at bat. Um, you know, he's, he's not exactly the archetype for, for a, a Zaidi offensive player because, you know, he's not going to walk a ton. But this is someone who is still an asset, especially a big-time asset on, on a team that doesn't have a whole lot of veteran experience. And, we, boy, he's hitting at home. That was the big problem when he first came over. He was not hitting at home at all. His numbers at home have, have been great this season. One of the things, when he came over in 2018, he's 32 years old, and his walk rate went just just cratered. Uh, he walked 22 times in 512 play Oof. appearances. Uh, it was a yeah, it was a rough season for him. Uh, at the same time, he was worth, according to Baseball Reference, about two wins uh, because of the defense. And you're thinking, gosh, if only he could hit a little bit. And then 2019. He hit a little bit. He had 20 home runs. He had a 325 on base percentage, but uh, combined with the defense, it was a pretty solid season, and that was worth, according to baseball reference, about two and a half wins. Well, now he's starting to put it together just a little bit more. Uh, he's not a walking machine, but he he's cut down on the strikeouts. It seems it, it, there's something that he's trying that is working just a little bit 
in that new Giants mindset. It, and the defense is still there. So, you know, it, it's not as simple as saying this guy's 34, he's washed up. He's he's starting from a really high, ce- you know, ceiling. And, and he's coming down off of a really, really good career. And he can have a long tail to that career if he makes some adjustments. And as of right now, it kind of looks like he's making them. Yeah, and, and we all sort of thought maybe when the season started that this team had probably two everyday, everyday players, and they were Yastrzemski and Longoria. And Yastrzemski has been fantastic. And uh, and as much as Longoria is an asset, I mean, those two guys were probably the most important players on the team to not have a bad season. And I think the fact the Giants are where they are and, and not, you know, like 10 games under already is is a, a big testament to both those guys and what they've done to, to make this offense not only functional, but a team strength. Absolutely. All right. So now we have to talk about, eh, I don't want to talk about the doubleheader. Do you want to talk about the doubleheader? Um, we could go through all of the Giants hits and talk about them individually. How many were there? Was, was it like I believe there were five, the maybe five. I, I don't know. All right. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it was, it, it, listen, Clayton Kershaw is still a good pitcher. I think, you know, with another five or six good years, he might have a chance at the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I, you know, I want to know at the end of his career what his numbers are going to look like against the Giants because it's it's the most dominant a pitcher has been against a team other than Sandy Koufax against the Mets, I believe. I believe I have it right. Uh, but that, I mean, Sandy Koufax is pitching against the expansion era Mets who were, you know, just an absolute mess. So this could be the most dominant that a pitcher has been against a- another team. And it's coming against a team that won three World Series in the time he was there, right? He, he was up in 2008, 2009. Remarkable. Just a remarkable pitcher. So I can at least tip my cap to Clayton Kershaw. Sandy Koufax was so damaging against the Mets that he was caught on a hot mic ripping the Wilpons. <laughs> that wouldn't damage the Mets. That would oh help them. Are you God. kidding me? It's, he, oh, the Mets. <laughs> Part of me thinks like, I should go cover the Mets because boy, would that be fun. What an endless array of, of interesting things to write about every day. You know, I used to look up the Kershaw stats all the time and update them. And it's like, why bother now? We know we know he's got like a one-something ERA in San Francisco. Does it matter if it's a 158 or 162 or 118 or whatever? No, it doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's, it's just one-something. Uh, in San Francisco. So, and, and we're talking about like an entire, like 200 plus innings. He's he's pitched an entire season of his career in San Francisco. And he's basically been Bob Gibson in 1968. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, and they beat him in, in LA, right? They, they they had some good at-bats against him. And, 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 and man, I'll tell you what, the other thing, he was not settled in right away. They hit some laser beams in that first inning. And the outfield defense for the Dodgers is a wonder to behold. My goodness. I don't know how far Cody Bellinger had to run to catch Yastrzemski's drive. But if that that falls in, you get him in the stretch, it might be an entirely different ballgame. And and outfield defense, the Dodgers do a lot of things right. I, I don't know if there's anything that they do like that's so head and shoulders above every other team than their outfield defense. It's phenomenal. We will be back after this. I guess this is a good time to point out how the mere existence of Cody Bellinger bugs me because he has a first baseman's frame 
He should be a lumbering first baseman. His dad is Clay Bellinger, a, a second-round draft pick of the Giants back in 1989. Clay Bellinger has, uh, let me look this up, 12 career home runs. Clay Bellinger's son should not look like that, should not play like that, should not run like that. I object. I want him stricken from the record. Didn't he hit one home run his senior year of high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, a, just a... Great story, developmental story, as as far as the Dodgers taking raw uh, baseball player and making baseball MVP out of it. It's it's just one of the more remarkable developmental stories in baseball. Still obnoxious. I think of Luis Gonzalez's kid that the Giants drafted in kind of a similar spot, a high school kid, you know, Mm. and I thought, boy... What if they could turn him into a Bellinger? And it hasn't happened for him thus far. It's Development is so tricky. I mean, it, it seems like uh, I was watching a video um, on Trevor Bauer's uh, YouTube channel. And it was uh, he and Michael Lorenzen and, and a Reds coach and Kyle Bodie from Driveline were all sitting around basically eating pasta and, and talking about uh, what, what pro ball is like and, and all of the different um, sort of misconceptions that they had. And... It, the way they talk about it, it, up until just very, very recently, uh, getting in an organization coming out of a, a college program that's pretty savvy, like a Vanderbilt, you think that all of this stuff is going to be be there for you, and all of these tools are going to be there for you, and it's kind of the wild west. It's almost like you're you're a third grader in a classroom of fifty kids. It's like there's no way you're going to get mm. any individualized attention. You're, you're not going to necessarily have the, the tools to develop, and that's changing. That's changing a ton, and I think that the the teams like the Dodgers that 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 really gravitated toward making player development much more meaningful and much more structured um, and much more strategic uh, were ahead of the curve. And everyone's catching up to that now. And the Giants have caught up to that, I think, as well. Um, but yeah, boy, it really must be gratifying if you're in player development and you have an input like a Cody Bellinger with what he's done as an amateur, and then you turn him into an MVP player um, who can just fly. Man, he gets down the line, and, and he can run down a ball, and, and he hits for power. And yeah, it, it, he got off to a rough start, and and when he's out of sync, boy, the swings can look pretty rough, but uh, um, he just, boy, he, he you never feel comfortable facing this Dodger team regardless of count. Even when you don't have count leverage with two strikes, they are still swinging, and you see the Giants buying into that now, and uh, and that's sort of the way of the world. But they, the Giant, the Dodgers were ahead of it. The Dodgers were ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. Uh, he is hitting two twenty eight with a three hundred on base percentage. Uh, he's having a disappointing season. And real quick before we move on, I'd like to take credit for that. He is on my fantasy team. All right. I know you wanted to hear that, uh, but moving on. So this is a confusing team for the deadline. The Giants have proven that they can be interesting. They've also proven that they can look pretty, pretty bad. You don't want to trade prospects. That's not the plan. You don't necessarily want to hold on to Kevin Gossman if there's an offer on the table that blows your socks off. What should the Giants do with the deadline? I'm confused by it. What do you think? I think they should trade for Fernando Tatis Jr. because he's on my fantasy team and he's worked out very well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think they're going to do a mix. I think they're going to look for right-handed relief and maybe trade some left-handed pieces. I think they possibly could trade maybe a Tony Watson. I think that they are going to look for left-handed bat. They feel like they've got a good lineup against lefties, but they probably could use one more right-handed hitter. But I think it's very much going to be a need-for-need type of trade. I don't think there's going to be a lot of teams that are outright selling 
And I don't think the Giants are going to outright sell. I mean, you heard Kevin Gaussman the other day say, you know what? I like being here. I think they've, they're have they running their protocols well. We haven't had any COVID issues here. If I get traded somewhere, I don't know how seriously they take the protocols. You know, he could see himself resigning here. And players always say that, right? You, you never want to burn any bridge or rule out any option. There's only 30 teams, right, that can bid for your services. So, you know, on one hand, none of that is surprising to hear him say, but I don't think Kevin Gossman's going anywhere. I would be surprised if, if he went somewhere. The only reason I could see the Giants trading a Kevin Gaussman is if they could get, you know, a cost-controlled starting pitcher. And one guy that's kind of interesting is like a just as a thought exercise, is Mike Clevenger. Would they want a Mike Clevenger after, you know, some of the stuff that's happened there, but he's still got a couple of years till he's a free agent. That'd be an interesting uh, question. That is, I, I think, yeah, a couple of years for, as a free agent. It's interesting, but again, that would, t- that would take prospects. Everyone's going to be climbing over each other to get Clevenger. And I don't know the Giants are eager to, they have outfield depth. Uh, you know, you have, when you, when you have Elliot Ramos and Canario and Hunter Bishop and Luis Matos, like you, you have guys you can point to and say, maybe we have four outfielders and we can use three. And that's not even including Yastrzemski. Uh, but I still think it's early for that. I still think it's early for that. On Monday, my plan is to write something about Gossman uh, before the trade deadline. And I'm sort of on the fence because I think he's a candidate for the qualifying offer. I don't know what the finances of baseball are like after this season. Uh, maybe that would be a drastic overpay. Uh, I don't know what the qualifying offer would be. It'd be probably close to, what, $18 million now. Uh, but the Giants are going to have a ton of free agent options. They're going to have money under their self-imposed budget. Uh, they would probably prefer to sign Goss- Gossman to a, a $10 million contract for a year or something like that. But would they pay a premium to keep him around for a season in which the Giants might take a huge step forward? Oh. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's got a lot of stuff. You know, I noticed when he was warming up before the game started the other day, um, the Money Song, who sings that one, was playing in the background. <laughs> Pink Floyd? Yeah, and I think, it was, yeah, it's, it's, was that his choice? Because that's kind of interesting. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, you know, teams have overpaid for stuff for, from time eternal, whether you want to talk about Jason Schmidt going to the Dodgers or, or Darren Dreifert or, you know, uh, even... Um, uh, Zach Wheeler, you know, uh, uh, it's like the career record does not justify the contract that he got. But the stuff, man, you look at the stuff. Gilmesh. Gilmesh didn't even have stuff. He was a changeup guy. <laughs> yeah. What stuff do you have? Not much stuff? Okay, here, take this. Con- what did, Didn't Gilmesh actually <laughs> retire and give back part of his contract? He felt so bad. I think he did. He did. He flat out just said, you know, it's it's rehabbing is really hard. My heart's not into it anymore. I've got enough money. Here, you take some of those. Wow. The, the Mariners have give, given away a lot of money over the years yeah. and not gotten a lot out of it. Um but yeah, you know, I, I think that there's going to be a pretty strong market for him. And, and the qualifying offer is an interesting, interesting thought exercise as well. And I, I would imagine if you're the Giants, you probably want to maybe try to get ahead of that and, and, and maybe make him something like a two-year offer with an option or something and, and try to, to avoid the qualifying offer game. Um, and, but, you know, it's it's... That's so far down the road, and there's so much that, that's going to happen before that. Uh, but it's got to be something that they think about because, you know, all of this, their strategies now are going to lead to strategies later. And, um, you know, so, yeah, they have to definitely kind of look a lot of chess moves down down the board, I guess, to, to figure out what they want to do. All right. This has been Episode 97 of the Bags and Brisbee Podcast. Thanks to Tanika Smothers for producing the heck out of us. Thanks to you for listening. And we will be back next week to talk about that sweet, sweet trade deadline. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you then.